right. Let's go. Okay. Welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser. I'm Sarayu, and tonight we have a very special guest, uh, an old friend. Uh, that is not his only qualification. He is a uh, financial journalist, a prolific novelist uh, who has written nine books. Uh, we're going to talk about his latest today. Um, and I, you know, I call him a music aficionado because, uh, in my eyes, he is, he probably has a very large collection of live music. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and last but not least, he lived across the hall from me in college. So I, if that's not a good enough reason to have somebody on your show, I don't know what it is. So please welcome 
my friend, Ed Lynn. Ed, welcome to the show. Hello, good people. It's awesome being here. Thanks for having me on. So are you. So great to have you on. So um, first of all, you are both a financial journalist by day uh, at Barron's. I, I write about insider and institutional trading. Uh, wow. This is not the same as inside trading, you know, which is uh, trading on non-public information and illegal, but uh, insiders, <laughs> that is directors and executives and what they're buying and, and selling. So you're writing during your day job more about things that are in the realm of kind of day-to-day -day business, but your night job and your novels is all about crime and mystery. There's a bit of history in there. There's uh -huh. humor. There's a little bit of drama. So I wonder, um, I want to take a step back and I want to hear about how you became a financial journalist, when you started to uh, write your novels. And are, are, is there any overflow between the two worlds? Is one influencing the other? Does one drive you to do the other? Is there a tension between the two? I'd love to hear a little bit about that because that's a lot of writing. You're not doing something completely different in your spare time or uh, as a hobby. You basically have another career as a novelist and uh, you're doing the same thing, but in two completely different worlds. <laughs> or, or maybe not. Or maybe, maybe not, not completely different. Yeah. Um, well, you know, back in, uh, actually, even before college, like, I pretty much wanted to write ever since I, I learned how to write. Um, and, uh, you know, all throughout, like, you know, school, high school and, and college, you know, I wanted ultimately to, to write books. And um, I actually, okay, I, my major in college was mining engineering, uh, but I was actually a double major. I had one more course to finish, to finish a literature writing degree. And I, I just could not get it done. I just couldn't do it. Wow. Just one more class to go at Columbia, you know. <laughs> it's okay because I already had... I think I'd already taken like five writing classes already. And uh, you know, I'm not saying that's enough. I'm, I'm just saying that was a, a really good thing to get me into the rhythm of writing, et cetera. And um, so I, uh, I applied for the journalism program, you know, the graduate journalism school. Um, and uh, I remember telling one of my professors, I'm like, you know, I got this all figured out. One of my writing professors, I got this all figured out. I'm going to be a journalist, you know, for my day job to like make money. And I'm going to be like writing at night and slowly I'm going to be able to write books. And he just shook his head and he said, you know what? So many people have tried that and they failed. Oh, wow. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the encouragement, dude. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I appreciate, like, his, his tempering my, my puppy dog enthusiasm, you know. Um, but, you know, hey, if you, if, if you are set on doing it, something like that is just going to fire you up and make you more determined. So uh, that was my reaction, you know. So uh, I, I went through the journalism program. Uh, and I, I graduated in 93, uh, and there was a terrible recession going on. I mean, um, and, and you know, uh, per, you know, it, it certainly was not good for, for media. And I remember sending out like, 
a hundred resumes, like everywhere from like in New York to Louisiana to Alaska. And the only place that responded was uh, Dow Jones News Service, the ticker. And I haven't even considered really, you know, financial news. Um, I remember one of my classmates said, yeah, you know what? You'd be good at financial news. And I was like, really? And he said, what's the difference between a stock and a bond? And I said, a stock is a part of a company. A bond is a debt obligation. He's like, see, you can do this. And you said, I was going to say, you said, is the answer corrosion of conformity? (laughs) (laughs) It's always the answer. Corrosion of conformity is always the the primary answer. But there's usually a secondary definition. So, um, you know, I ended up being at the ticker for... Uh, a little more than six years. And you know what? Those years going from the depths of the recession in like 92, 93, and then like where we were in 99 was just like, I think did the market double? I think the NASDAQ definitely did. But like stocks were just on a rampage. And um, in, in the latter years, whenever a company put out a press release saying that, you know, we have an online strategy that stock would like shoot up like 20, 30 percent. Um, I don't know if you remember it or not, but the the airwaves were crazy. Like uh, the commercials on TV were insane for all these like half baked, you know, companies that you know didn't, didn't have a really what, well thought out business plan. And yet what year here they this? work uh, like the the late 90s, like oh, yeah. 97, uh-huh. 98, 99. Um, and and the, <laughs> These commercials, they, they were probably some of the best commercials ever because they were just crazy. <laughs> Do you I remember, remember, by the way, a company called Boo.com? Boo.com? They were considered the biggest bust of the dot-com in 2000. It was a fashion company started by a model. Uh, it was three folks, and the joke was it was started by, uh, you know, three models, $200 million from General Atlantic, um, uh, Goldman Sachs, and BCG. Um, and by the way, it wasn't a dumb idea. The timing was wrong. It was essentially online shopping. And they had an avatar named Miss Boo, which would show you uh, what to wear. I got a job offer but from them, by the way. It was like they had these beautiful offices in Soho. It's another story about why I didn't take it. Uh, well, actually, I can just tell you because I just thought that they were sort of out of their depth uh, in what they were doing. But they, they had brought over uh, somebody from BCG to become the CEO. And it was one of the largest sort of busts. So if you Google boo.com, boo. but it wasn't a bad idea. I think it's easy to trash things. And especially when it's like, oh, there's a model running it. Uh, but clearly, these are people that were insiders in the fashion industry. The problem was that it was, I think, too early. And as you know, as somebody that deals with this topic um, of finance too early in finance means you're wrong. You could actually be technically right, but if it's not at the right time, you're wrong. So yes, I absolutely remember it was pets.com. I mean, something new every single day. Oh, remember pseudo.com? No. What was that? (laughs) It was, it was a really, really early news site with streaming video and uh, you know, the bandwidth on dial up was like horrible. So you, it would always be kind of garbled yeah. up. Yeah, it was like, and, and they tried all these fancy graphics effects. It kind of looked like, 
I don't know, like 120 minutes on MTV, but like really slowed down. <laughs> but boring. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. No, but I remember there were great ideas, right? There was a, do you remember there was one called Mob Shop? Do you remember that? No. Where multiple, you could just, the power, you could get a whole bunch of people to drive down the price of a particular product. Wow. So yeah, isn't that a great idea? I, I was actually just thinking, do I want to put this out there? Maybe I should start this. <laughs> um, it was a bunch of people would get together online strangers and say, if you wanted to get, uh, you know, a um, iPhone that's $800, if you could get 500 people that were interested in it, you could bring the price down to 400, like cut it in half, something like that. Um, so that was a great idea. But there were so many things that were just too early or you just didn't have the market. So, yes, I do remember those days. Huh. Oh, so anyway, um, it, it was during that time when, uh, you know, I was just, I mean, my hours kind of felt like they were getting longer and longer. And like, at this point, I'm like almost 30 years old. And, you know, there's that thing, you know, with writing, it's like, I need to finish that first book before I'm 30 or I'm going to die or <laughs> I'm going to, I got to climb Mount Everest before I'm 30. Because 30 um, was so old. I remember when I thought 27 was so damn old. I, I would think <laughs> to myself, if I, I remember we had a secretary that was 27 at the architecture firm that I worked at. And I was like, if I'm 27 and like him, I am going to kill myself. I literally <laughs> think that every day when I walked in. <laughs> oh my gosh. But you know, it's funny looking back, like I felt like I was in my 20s forever, you know? And like, since then, like the years kind of go by pretty quick, but like the twenties just kind of drag because like you st I, I still wasn't what, you know, I really wanted to be. And I, I felt like a lot of my friends were, were kind of like that too. Like, um, y you know, cause I still hadn't, you know, written that book yet. Um, I had a couple of false starts and stuff, you know, um, uh, you know, it's almost, uh, uh, cliche to say that uh, a writer's first book that gets published is not their first. It's probably the second or third book that they've written. Um, and, you know, that's definitely true for me. I had like, um, like two kind of, two manuscripts that I probably had like 200 pages or more in them. They were just not good. I mean, I just felt it when I was writing it, you know, talk about half-baked ideas. It's like, you know, when you sit down and actually write the thing you were, you had kind of envisioned, and if you're losing interest, you know, how much interest is a reader going to have in this thing, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's actually the, the third book that I kind of felt this, you know, that I felt was good, and I, like, stuck with it, and, like, wrote it, and, like, uh, revised it on my own to as as well as I could. Um, and then I took this, it's amazing, in mid-1999, in mid I took this class with Jhumpa Lahiri um, under oh, the yeah. Asian American Writers Workshop. And uh, other people in this class included Min Jin Lee. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, Kathy Park Hong and uh, Lisa Ko. Um, and like, you know, and I would, I was, at the time, I was working in uh, Jersey City, so I'd have to take the path back to New York and then 
you know, get over to uh, Jumpa's uh, little office space. And so I was always the last person in. And, you know, the only open seat is always, like, right next to the Jumpa. So <laughs> I always, like, sat next to her. And, like, I would, like, chit-chat with her. And, like, you know, she was, like, such a great person, such a great teacher. Like, she always made the time to talk. She never, uh, you know, she never said no to, like, additional help and, like, chatting about anything, you know, Um I, I'm definitely a Jhumpa Lahiri stan, um, and that that class was really amazing. And you know, I actually workshop parts of what became my first published novel. Um, do you know? Do you know that she's actually coming back to teach at uh, Columbia and Barnard? Yes, I saw that. I saw yeah. that. I'm actually pretty psyched for whoever's going to be. Uh, yeah, I think you know, it's a big score classes for them. With her. That's that's great. Um, and so, and, and just so that people know, Jhumpa Lahiri uh, won, I think it was Interpreter of Maladies. Yes. That was the book. Yes. Um, and she had won the... Um, uh, the Pulitzer. The Pulitzer Prize, right. Yeah, Pulitzer but this Prize class was just months before she won it. Oh, which is crazy, right? Yeah. Which is crazy that you have access to that kind of, uh, you know, talent and personality. But, you know, I wanted to ask you... So, you know, you're working as a financial journalist. Oh, first yeah. of all, you are like a credit short of getting that double major. Does that not kill you? I mean, do you think about that and go, oh, my God, like, does that does that bother you in any way as uh, an engineering? And I'll also just throw in a few other things as an engineering major. You didn't go in that direction. And you're obviously a brilliant student. If you're at uh, I always pronounce this wrong. C-S-E-A-S, the School of Engineering at Columbia. And did your parents have a fit that you were going to pursue something in writing? Because it's like, Ed, seriously. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you know, they, they were not happy about journalism school. You know, they certainly are not happy that I wanted to write. <laughs> but, uh, no, they're, they're okay with it now. Because, um, you know, it's funny. Being at a financial publication has sort of given me a, a language a to talk with them. Yeah, you know? yep. Um, but um, I guess it, it only bothers me that I didn't finish that last class in the sense of, like, closure. Because, you, you, you know, you don't really need a writing degree to, to write. Um, and oh, but I you did... put in all that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that was, it was all good, like, taking those classes. Not, not only the writing classes, but the, uh, the literature classes as well. It was all really good for me. Um, and I do have the, the graduate, you know, degree from the journalism school. So, you know, that was definitely, you know, ultimately more important in, in terms of like getting the day job portion of uh, the writing life uh, squared away. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, there must have been something in the water on the eighth floor of John Jay, because you know that row that we, you used to live literally right across the hall from me. and. Yeah. You know, next to our neighbor was Bob Colker, who has gone on to, uh, I think he was, I, don't, I forget which newspaper he was at, but he's written a couple of books about real crime. Um, uh, and I believe the guy next door to me was also a writer, but I feel like everybody, I call it writer's row. Everybody kind of <laughs> pursued something in writing or, uh, you know, 
writes articles like I do. So I thought that was sort of interesting in thinking about that. Um, I don't yeah. know if you remember any of those folks, but um, so, okay. So you clearly don't have enough of writing. You're doing the financial journalism, but you decide I want to pursue this, uh, these, these novels that are within me. And so what do you do? You go out and you write nine books, two of which are kind of in a series, the Taipei Night Market series, which I think is such a beautiful name. If anybody has traveled to Asia and been to night markets, you'll know why. There's something just very, um, I don't know, there's something lovely and mysterious, and there's a curiosity around every corner, um, and just fascinating places to be. And then a second series, uh, or maybe that was the first one, The Chinatown Mysteries, and then a couple of other books. So... Can we talk a little bit about the themes of these books before we get to the latest, okay. uh, which is um, Death Doesn't Forget, yes. uh, which is the fourth in your Taipei mystery series. Yes. Um, and then before that, also, you have David Tung Can't Have a Girlfriend Until He Gets Into an Ivy League College, <laughs> and, and which I, I wonder if, there's, uh, if, there's, if you're drawing upon any real life experience. Uh, and waylaid. And I will just tell you from that title, David Tyne Can't Have a Girlfriend Until It Gets in an Ivy League Cause, I am going to guess that there is a lot of commonality between the, you know, all the sort of Asian diaspora experience, especially as second generation, uh, about uh, going to college, whether you come from a family that was educated or not, the expectation is that you're going to, you know, graduate, uh, you know, do really well, be a contributing member of society, get married. You have, there's a track that you're expected to follow. So I think there is some built-in kind of uh, resonance for anybody, uh, particularly Asians, I think, uh, the Asian second generation diaspora, even just in that title. So <laughs> talk to me about those three streams of oh, books. Okay. Um well, you know, the the first book is definitely the most autobiographical, waylaid. Uh, it's based on, you know, my childhood of, like, growing up at our family, uh, our low-end hotel on the Jersey Shore and just working there all the time. I mean, uh, you know, for a lot of kids, like, school is, like, the drag part, and being at home and running around with friends is, like, the fun part. You know, for me, it was, like, the opposite. Like, school was the fun part, and then... After that, I would have to come home to at the motel and like work, you know. Um, I mean, it was almost like having a full time job on top of like going to school. Um, the kind of things that I would do would uh, it'd be like sweeping up like all the broken glass on, on on the driveway. We it was a huge, huge driveway too, because uh, the motel was like one floor, but it was like spread out. Uh, into like this, uh, it was shaped like the letter U. And man, there was like broken glass all over that thing because uh, in the summers, all these people would come down from the city uh, and like smash their beer bottles for the heck of it um, and and emptying out all the garbage too, uh, mowing the lawns. Uh, that was a pain. On top of cleaning the rooms. Uh, but the 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 cool thing about it was that uh, I also watched The Office late on uh, the weekends. So I would like, you know, basically watch TV from like, I don't know, I guess around 1030 to like two, three in the morning. 
and then uh you know the tv would sign off <laughs> they don't sign off anymore but uh, uh to those younger people who are unfamiliar with antenna tv like around two three in the morning you know every station would play uh you know the stars and stripes and then the flag it would show a video of the flag being lowered and then the station would go off the air um, that was even for like you know New York City stations and stuff. Um, if you had cable, you could still watch public access, I guess. But but anyway, it was cool because I got to see all the the Saturday Night Lives, like all the reruns too with uh, John Belushi, uh, and uh, you know the Twilight Zones, which, which oh, I yeah. loved. You know, I kind of feel like the Twilight Zones kind of helped me become a writer just um you know because it even though it's it was a tv show it was really a writer's show because you know the sets were always so sparse and there was just so much in the dialogue they never had much in the ways of like the costume or the the sets or anything it was basically people talking to each other right um like in a really stark kind of way um it, it wasn't noir but it was noirish in in that sense that it, it was you know someone kind of talked you through it, um, and that it was black and white. <laughs> yes, and that it was black and white, <laughs> um, and that things moved really quickly. Uh, oh, strangely, uh, one time I remember someone coming into the office and saying, "Hey, John Belushi is down here." I was like, "What?" And they said, like, you see that guy on the diving board? You know, we had a swimming pool. And it was all the way at the other end of the U. And he said, that guy in the yellow trunks, it's John Belushi. Come on out, man. You can, I'm going to introduce you to him. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I, I can't. I got to I gotta watch what? the office. Yeah. So, like, I guess it was, like, part of me, you know, being a cynical kid, too. Like, ah, get out of here. But uh, I just... You know, I just wonder, was it really John Belushi? I guess it could have been. Because, uh, you know, our hotel is pretty popular among the partying crowd. He's a partying kind of guy. I feel like that's the beginning of a novel. Was that actually John Belushi? <laughs> was I mean, it John cool. Belushi? Um, so you, I mean, so, I, you know, I actually did not know that that was your background. Um, and that you were working with your parent and, you know, clearly that translated when you were unlike myself, that translated into college where mm. you, I am sure kicked ass having, you know, a double major uh, in two topics that are, you know, one would argue left brain and right brain. So you, so much of what you experienced might have gone into these first, I guess, two books, David Tongue and Waylaid. Um, how did you then end up moving from something that was somewhat biographical over to these two different series, which really, I mean, when you dig in a little bit, it seems like they cover, they're complex, they're windy, they're twisty. They've got lots of different characters. Um, and they're a little bit of everything, right? They're mystery, but they're also funny. Uh, there's a little bit of drama, uh, and, or a lot of drama. And there's also little pieces of history woven in. Yes. How did you go from writing about something that you knew to something that you maybe know, but um, I mean, you're obviously not a cop. You obviously were not an adult in the 1970s, um, <laughs> like Robert Chow, who we need to also explain who that is uh, mm -hmm. in the uh, 
in, in your books. Um, how did you how did you move to focusing on these themes? Oh, uh, well, you know, while I was writing Waylaid, my first book, um, even before I finished, uh, I started writing what became This is a Bust, which is the first book in the uh, Chinatown trilogy. And o- only because I'm like, so I was already so terrified, you know, of hearing about these people who only like wrote and published one book and like just stopped. I was like, oh my God, that can't happen to me. I need this, I need to have two books ready. <laughs> and, and that put me on, you know, my current writing path, which is just that I'm, I'm always working on more than one book at a time, you know. Uh, so, you know, I guess strategically, I can't really get writer's block because I can just jump into the other book and, and work on that. Um, and so I, you know, I already had a pretty deep interest in like crime and mystery. Um, you know, I, I, I love film noir, the early, uh, the early stuff. Uh, By the way, and, did you ever take the film noir class at Columbia? I know I didn't, but I took a mystery. I took a mystery class with uh, Carolyn Heilbrunn, okay. who wrote uh, mysteries under the pseudonym. Uh, oh shoot! I don't know. Okay, the name of her character was Kate Fansler, but um, I don't remember. But uh, but that was awesome too. Like taking this writing class, and uh, it's funny because she, she, if you just took this class and. You know, didn't do any research about her. She wouldn't mention her, her, her books at all. But like, you know, just when when we'd be gathered in in the class, you know, like before she came in, we'd all like just talk about her books and stuff because she never talked about it herself. <laughs> wow! Um, those, but those there, there was there was a film noir class in Columbia. Yeah, I was in it. Um, ah! Who taught it? But and I got all of my friends. So there was like six of us that were architecture, you know, that were dying because all we could do is architecture. Um, (laughs) Right. I I declared an English minor so that I could do some acting and read my Shakespeare plays, but um, nobody else had time, you know, no one, you could not declare a minor. It was just like being at a trade school. You were in studio all the time. And so uh, one thing that I did convince everybody, I was like, come on, it's connected. (laughs) Is I, that's like six, of my friends to take the film noir class with me. So we watched all the classics. I think it was James Seamus, actually. Whoa, yeah. wow. It was James Seamus who went on to, write, uh, to direct uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I went to go see him because I thought I was going to go to the film school. And I went to go talk to him and I was like, hey, I don't know what I want to do. I'm pretty sure I don't want to do architecture. Thinking about going to the film school. And his advice to me was like, F film school, <laughs> really serious about movies, go out and get a high eight camera and start making them. And then I was like, yeah, I guess I'm not really serious. <laughs> 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 I'm not movies. I just wanted to go to film school, but wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he was the one that taught that class. Yeah. A really lovely guy too. Awesome. Yeah. Good machine. That was one of his movies. Oh no. That's like the, the production company. Oh, like he, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like Ang Lee is a part yeah. of that or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ang Lee and him. Yep. Wow, but, uh, man. Wow. Yeah. No, but you know what? Uh, I would go to the the film schools film screenings. Like uh, they had the 
it, it was the only way to see the undubbed, uh, you know, Mad Max, the not Mad Max 2, like the original Mad Max, because uh, Mel Gibson's voice was dubbed for the American release because oh, wow. he had such a heavy Australian accent. They were worried, you know, no one could understand what he was saying. Wow. And I, I starkly remember seeing uh, Nosferatu uh, and Casket of uh, Dr. Caligari. <laughs> um, I guess that's not really noir, but it's horror. Uh, but I love horror, too. At some point, I do want to write a horror book. Oh, wow. Well, then we'll have to talk because I will tell you that I've probably seen every... I was such a fanatic. All I would do is watch horror movies till about sometime in the mid-90s when my mother basically told me that uh, possibly all of my behavioral problems are coming from what I was watching. So I decided to stop. <laughs> this will stop. Maybe if I stop watching murders and ghosts. And She still tells me what I, she's like, stop watching that stuff. Everything you watch, Twilight Zone. Like, why is everything so bizarre? I'm like, I don't know. That's what I'm interested in. What can I tell you? But anyway, you've got the Taipei murder mysteries. You've got the Chinatown. How do you get into writing about those two you're always interested in crime uh in sort of the darker side of of life but you go from things that are somewhat autobiographical autobiographical to make this jump to this other world was it wanting to sort of try your hand at kind of the stuff that you were consuming and enjoying um what took you in that direction um well you know originally uh this is a bust was it it was not a traditional mystery at all. It was like a very internalized kind of thing. Like this, uh, this Asian American cop who was drafted to fight in Vietnam. And he, he comes back and he's like all messed up, all this crazy racial stuff within him. Um, and like just really feeling the self hate. Um, like one of the early lines in the book is like, uh, if, you know, I'm now I, I walk the beats, uh, the, the beat in Chinatown and, uh, I was born here and it's the last goddamn place in the world I wanted to be. <laughs> and that's Robert Chow. That's right? Robert that's, Chow. That's talking. the character of Robert Chow that yeah. appears across, uh, that series, yes. uh, the Chinatown series. Yes. Um, and, and again, you know, when you're talking about this, I will just interject and say, I think some of the sentiments that you are expressing through the character of Robert Chow are things that maybe many children, second generation of immigrants feel, right? Wherever you come from, you want to fit in. Sure. Um, and you don't want to kind of be part of that thing that actually gave you everything that you are. And maybe you come back to it as an adult, you know, sort of full circle. But um, most, you know, this is a country that has a hold on people like no other about when we talk about the melting pot. Uh, on one hand, we say we celebrate sort of diversity and, you know, we give me your poor, you're tired, you're hungry. But the, the deal is that once you get here, you need to assimilate and everybody kind of needs to fall into, into steps. So I feel like that is something that is sort of a universal theme again. Um, oh, definitely. And, um, and even fitting into, you know, uh, the general population, but also, you know, whatever locale you're in, like, uh, hey, this this guy did not fit in in Chinatown. Um, you know, um, the, the Chinatown definitely has, like, their strivers and stuff, 
But uh, Robert is like this self-destructive kind of guy. Um, he he's a low-level beat cop, and the the local uh, precinct just uses him for like photo ops. Like he's at yeah. restaurant openings, posing in pictures. Uh, he's at like the community center here, like cutting a ribbon for something. It's just to show that the NYPD is interested in the community and whatever. But he, you know, he's just kept at a really low level, and he just really hates that he's just the face for this sort of thing. And um, the thing is, is that uh, it's like an inverted mystery. Like Robert has to solve himself, or he's going to die. It's not like he has to solve a crime. He has to solve himself. <laughs> and and I think, you know, I, again, I think that is something that is very resonant for many, many, many folks that come to this country uh, about fitting in. And yes. particularly, I think sometimes when you're visibly different, when somebody can pick you out, uh, you know, either because of your accent or the way that you look or uh, something that uh, your culture is sort of on your lapel or uh, your sleeve, that it's something that, uh, you know, is something that is deeply, deeply felt by, by, by many immigrants that come to this country. So um, I think that that is also something that was very relevant. But, but this character runs across that Chinatown mysteries uh, set of the triad um, and is this is that theme of sort of solving himself something that runs across the three books, or does he ever do that? <laughs> uh, you know, I would say that he he definitely uh, reaches a point where he's better in, in the first book, and the second and third books are more standard mystery. Um, see, I uh, this is a bust was and the first book waylaid were both published by uh, Kaya Press, you know, this small indie Asian-American publisher. And uh, when This is a Bus came out, someone at uh, Thomas Dunn, which at the time was affiliated with uh, Minotaur and uh, St. Martin's, uh, this, this woman, this Asian-American editor, actually, she got in touch with me and she was like, hey, do you want to write a sequel for... This is a bust for us. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and she said, but it, you know, this is a bust kind of straddles that like literary and mystery thing. We, yeah. we really want something that's just more mystery. And I said, huh, okay. Uh, you know, I can try this. And, uh, I remember at the time I was reading, uh, I was reading one of the back issues of, um, Mojo, I think this British music magazine. Um, and it was this, this older interview with Bruce Springsteen. And he was talking about uh, writing uh, Born to Run because he, the albums previous to that had done pretty well, but he like still hadn't broken out. Um, and he, he was just kind of wrestling with it himself. He's like, you know, do I want this commercial kind of success or do I want to keep writing the songs, telling the stories that I want to tell, you know? And it's like, I can do both and I can try to do both. If I don't try this, you know, I'll never really know. So that was, you know, I read that on the cusp of writing my book for like, you know, my first major publisher. Um, 
And so that book became Snakes Can't Run, where I just uh, I just really tried to go for it while also still talking about Chinatown and its politics and, and history uh, in 76. Um, I was I was pretty rigid about the research, you know. I mean, I had been in Chinatown as a kid, you know, coming in from Jersey. Um, but I also, like, restricted myself to, like, newspapers and, like, TV shows and, like, movies and music from the 70s. Uh, I was listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder and uh, Santana <laughs> and LaBelle back when that was, like, three women. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's getting in the vibe of the 70s, and it's like... Um, Things were were so much interesting back then. I feel like since then we've like been categorizing things, right? Like um, you know, music stores have like broken down their you know not only just like into metal, but there's like you know thrash metal, death metal, doom metal, all yeah. these different categories. But like you know, back then there 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 were like categories. It was just like everything just alphabetical order. You yeah. go in there. Um, yeah. I remember someone telling me, like, you know, we didn't have categories like rock. And, like, when Neil Young put out a new record, man, everybody listened to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think this is a nice little, you know, segue. A couple of things. I actually lived in Chinatown. I don't know if you know that. After graduating. Oh. Um, yeah, 84 Forsyth Street. And I don't know if I told you that story in the last... Um, uh, on the punk rock show that you uh, showed up on, um, I was sitting in a bar recently in the last five years in New York waiting for a friend. And uh, there was a guy sitting down the, uh, it was a very small bar in, I mean, now the Lower East Side is just completely gentrified, right? Oh, it's like yeah. all these kids go out. When I lived there, it was, you would hear sewing machines going 24 <laughs> seven because it was all the Chinese immigrants, you know, working. Yeah, um, And this was like in the early 90s. And to your sort of the mix of New York, if you would just walk up to Broome Street and stuff, you could actually find the old apartments that Madonna, you know, the basement apartments or Keith Haring or uh, Basquat, you know, lived in. And there was just this mix of like all different like art and music and, and culture. And, um, uh, you know, when I was sitting in this bar, which is now completely gentrified again, the last five years <laughs> waiting for a friend to, to pick me up. Um, I was talking to the bartender um, and mentioned to him, you know, I said, I hate this neighborhood. I was like, I hated it when I lived here. and <laughs> I hate it now for different reasons. And he said, oh, why? And I said, oh, you know, I said, we lived in a fourth floor walk up and I lived with my boyfriend and a couple of roommates. And I mean, it was fun, but it was also, you know, um, kind of when you're just out of school and you're not sure what direction you're going in blah, blah, blah. Yeah. to throw these huge parties. And so all of Columbia would come downtown to these parties. <laughs> and I'm talking about this. And I said, these were legendary parties. Everybody would show up. Um, and the guy, the one other guy in the bar turns to me and says, those were legendary parties. <laughs> I was there. And I was like, what? And I turned to him and I'm like, who are you? And he turns out to be friends with one of my roommate a couple years ahead of us. Um, and of course, the bartender looks like Iggy Pop starts laughing, claps his hands and goes, this happens all the time. I'm like, no, it doesn't. You know, <laughs> so I'm talking to this guy. 
Meanwhile, my friend that I'm waiting for is a German guy, doesn't have much of a connection in New York, shows up late. We retell him this incredible story. Here I am talking about, you know, parties in the 90s when I used to live on Forsyth Street and the guy, the only other patron in the bar, turns out to be a friend of a friend that had come to our parties. Um, and I'm telling you about the apartment. I said it was a huge, it's in Chinatown, fourth floor walk up, walk up. We had four bedrooms, a recording studio. Uh, my boyfriend at the time was both on Wall Street and in the music business like you, he was doing a night thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling him about this. And as I'm telling him, he goes, Forsyth Street. And he starts looking at his phone and I'm like, oh no, what is he doing? Pulls up a picture and goes, is this your apartment? And shows me my apartment. This is my German friend. And I go, what? And it turns out his friend bought the very apartment that we had lived in. Oh. Uh, and Iggy Pop, the bartender, he looked like Iggy Pop, he, like claps his hands and goes, this happens all the time. I'm like, no, it doesn't. This does not happen all the time. So it was crazy. But, you know, those days were very, very different from the Chinatown that you see today. And certainly... Uh, you know, I wasn't there in the 70s, obviously, but a completely different, uh, you know, much, even much more different vibe. So you clearly did a bunch of research to put yourself back into that spot in order to inform your novel and the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so you, you write these three novels about Robert Chow, but then you sort of move on. You close that chapter for now and move on to the Taipei mystery series. Yes. Um, when you were writing these things, were you thinking about them as a series of books or was it you wrote one and you're like, there's more of a story here with Robert Chow or there's there's a more of a story here in the Taipei Night series. And, and how did you go from, jump from the Chinatown mysteries to the Taipei mysteries? Well, you know, in the course of doing research for uh, the Chinatown books, I had to wonder a bit more about, you know, my own family's story. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? Who are we and how did we get here? Um, and, you know, my father's family is like longtime Taiwanese. Like, they, they landed in uh, Taiwan after the, the Ming Dynasty collapsed in like, you know, 1600s in China. Wow. wow. Yeah, so they've been there a long time. And, uh, you know, it was, there's this legendary family story about seven brothers, seven Lin brothers coming to Taiwan and, like, one going back to China. Uh, and, um, and just all the changes that they had been through in Taiwan are just, like, mind-boggling. I mean, like, you know, the, the Spanish planted their flag there, the French did... Uh, you know, Imperial China uh, under the Manchus uh, did, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, Imperial China ends up losing uh, a war against Japan and cedes uh, Taiwan to Japan for 50 years. Uh, so, like, Japan, uh, you know, what Taiwan was Japan's model colony from 1895 to 1945. And basically, Japan wanted to show that it was so modern to to the other European powers. It's like, look, we can be good colonizers too. Look at what a great job we're doing in Taiwan. And like, Taiwan became like the showplace colony uh, where they are like, you know, digging canals. 
their uh, wiring for electricity, building trains uh, and associated infrastructure. Um, you know, and then it's a very different story from Japan uh, invading Korea in 1910, which is something that Japan has wanted to do for hundreds of years to, to conquer Korea. And the way that they treated Koreans was that they treated them as like defeated uh, rivals. And uh, they treated Koreans, you know, pretty badly uh, as opposed to the, the elevated living but still second-class citizen uh, lives that the Taiwanese had uh, under the Japanese. Uh, and so, like, even today, like, uh, there are still warm feelings towards Japan in, in Taiwan. And, like, Korea is still, uh, you know, they still want Japan to apologize to, to give a true apology for the, the way that they treated Koreans. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I would say that, like, Taiwan is probably, in East Asia, like, uh, really Japan's only ally. Um, did your, you had mentioned that your family had come over at the collapse of the Ming Dynasty. What, what prompted that, um, that, that move? Oh, well, you know, the Ming Dynasty collapsed because... The Manchus invaded uh, China, and uh, so they were fleeing. Yeah, they were fleeing because, like, uh, under uh, under the Manchus, like uh, Chinese were second class citizens in their own country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so okay, so then you start digging into. There's a desire then to go into your family. So you've talked about kind of the some of the the first kind of themes of, uh, or, or inspirations, let's say, uh, no matter sort of how tenuous the connection or how deep the connection are really kind of about <laughs> the experience here, right. Of, of, of yes, the family yeah. and you being here. And then you're like, wait a minute, what was before that? So you start looking at, uh, setting your novels, uh, back in kind of the old country. Yeah. Um, and so, you're probably doing a lot of research for that. Do you speak to your parents about how it was? Are they providing you with any information or lore? Uh, or is this completely like an Ed Lynn production? Well, it's, it's pretty much an Ed Lynn production. You know, they are not, <laughs> you know, my parents, you know, they told me a bit, but they are not like really primary sources of information because like, uh, I kind of feel, uh, you know, Taiwan went through this, 40-year period of martial law under uh, the Kuomintang from, like, 1947 to 1987. So, you know, if you go to Taiwan or if you live in Taiwan and you have, like, Taiwanese friends and stuff, they're pretty reticent about, like, telling you personal details uh, it just, just because of, you know, uh, how so many things are just unresolved from yeah. the martial law period. Like, you could know someone really well for, like, 10, 20 years and, like, still have, like, never met their family or or, or been to their house or anything, you know. Um, but, yeah, my, my parents, they were not really forthcoming about much information at all. Um, did that did that bother you? Uh, it, well, it was annoying, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I I don't know if it would have really helped that much at the end because uh, I, I 
kind of wanted to examine like Taiwan as like a, a parallel existence rather than, you know, like Chinatown, the, the Chinatown series was looking, you know, 40, 50 years in the past. And I was like, you know, what if, you know, my family had stayed in Taiwan? Yeah. You know, what could my life have been like? And uh, I even lent my Mandarin name to the main character, Jing Nan. You know, that's that's my Mandarin name. Oh, wow. Because I was going to ask you, because you have a mix of English names, nicknames, and yeah. uh, Chinese names. And I was going to ask you what your inspiration was to have that um, that mix. I'm sure it's um, that is quite normal over there. But I was wondering, you know, what your inspiration was. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible, horrible mix of like, you know, uh, English and Mandarin and like pseudo-opinion and like Taiwanese, like even if you're, even if you're walking down the same street, like um, you, you know the, the the Chinese characters for the street will be the same, but like the street name could like change into like different spellings or like you know different forms of pinyin and stuff, and it's like what where, where am I going? <laughs> yeah, e- even when you're on the the subway in Taipei, like each. Each station, you have to have four announcements. It's in like Mandarin, then Taiwanese, and then Hakka, and like English. Uh, this friend of mine was joking, and he was like, by the time they're on the third language, the doors are shut and you're on to the next station. <laughs> when you were talking about the Japanese and, and Taiwan, I was also thinking in, in, in some strange way, Taiwan is also a bit of a melting pot, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the way that America is. We we're talking about the names. And it also occurred to me with the Japanese influence and these European colonizers and the fact that people had to leave their culture and lives in China and come to Taiwan and kind of cobble together, you know, a new identity for, in exile sometimes. It all sort of seems strangely resonant. And I'm like, why? And it's like, oh, that's because America is like that. <laughs> there are a lot of parallels. Like, um, you know, as far as East Asia is concerned, I don't think any other country has uh, marriage equality. Is that true? Oh, wow. I, yeah. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So it's also very progressive. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, uh, that was a hard-fought uh, democracy there to get martial law lifted. I mean, a lot of people... Uh, you know, protested for years, did time in jail. Um, you know, this this recent president, Ah Bien, uh, Chen Shui Bien, he was one of the guys who, uh, I think back when he was at this journal that, that protesting against the government and ended up being sentenced and locked away uh, as a political prisoner, like him and a whole political generation. Uh, and they weren't freed until martial law was over. Um, and later on, he was uh, <laughs> he was jailed for corruption uh, when he took office, after he took office. Uh, but that's another story. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it was a hard-fought democratic kind of process. Uh, and when martial law was lifted, uh, more expats returned to Taiwan to, to, to make it even more free, um, I feel. You know, people say that, like, it's, like, in the crosshairs of, like, China, and China wants to invade and everything. But when you're actually in Taiwan, it feels uh, 
pretty loose, you know, yeah. Yeah. pretty free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's what's what's interesting also is that you, you have that tension of, you know, China pointing, you know, to history and saying that Taiwan was originally a Chinese province, but you also have Taiwanese. I have quite a few Taiwanese friends that argue that, you know, they were really never a part of the modern Chinese state. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so it's 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 a very interesting kind of um, universe. And so this is the backdrop on which you've got these next four novels, uh, the latest of which is Death Doesn't Forget. Can you give us sort of an overview? Take us through kind of what the theme is of these of these four books. Um, I guess the theme really. Um... Well, Jing Nan himself is an orphan, and I kind of wanted that because, uh, you know, Taiwan is kind of an orphan. It it lacks a lot of official diplomatic ties. I think it only has like 21 or 22 at this point. Um, and, and yet it, it has had like different parents, like, uh, you know, Imperial China at one point, uh, Japan at one point, arguably now... The U.S. is kind of like a distant parent, um, but just kind of, you know, being a real underdog and uh, and yet still being, you know, uh, being able to carry on and uh, and finding a way through, um, which is something that Jing Nan himself has to do with the uh, the night market stall that once belonged to his family and uh, that he's carrying on. Like one thing that he did was that he flipped the script. He made it really uh, vibrant on social media. And, and so, <laughs> so that like, was very, that yeah, was it's very like, funny. Yeah, that was sort of the little um, clip that came out of, you know, I was reading like the press releases uh, and stuff for the book. Worst of all, he may lose followers on social media. <laughs> Yeah, take a line from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. ABS, always be shareable. Always be selling, yes. <laughs> always be closing. Copies for yeah, closers. Yeah, always be closing, yeah. Always be closing by ABC. Yeah. So, you know, there there's a certain day-to-day, like, existing kind of element to it. But there's also, like, a bit of a long-term sort of thing. Um you know, um, Taiwan definitely has its struggles. I mean, you know, uh, Aboriginal peoples are still marginalized and they only seem to get attention, like, with each election cycle uh, where, you know, the ties are played up between, like, the candidates and then soon after the new president is sworn in, there's always a period where they issue an apology to the Aboriginal tribes for taking their land and destroying their customs and language. But um, not much seems to happen after that. You know, again, the parallels to America are striking. (laughs) Right? Right? Um, So I think, Ed, we've got a caller. I don't know if you want to take, I don't know if they have a question or a comment. Did you want to take that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... La- Lamin, what what's your name? Lam- They've disappeared. Okay, um, <laughs> they came back. They were, I think, they were waiting before, and so maybe they'll come back and okay. jumped off and then came back. But uh, we will we will uh, bring them up uh, if they come back. We'll, but we'll monitor um, the situation. 
we will monitor the situation. Um, and if folks show up, what, what I'll just do is maybe uh, interrupt you and because there were a few other people that had showed up and I was just wanting to uh, uh, hear what you uh, uh Finish, finish hearing what you were saying. So, okay, so you've got this series of these four books um, and the character is really very much kind of uh, the embodiment of Taiwan in many ways. Yeah. And so you're talking, there's a series of four books. Can you, can you tell us about, you know, we've talked a little bit about the theme. The latest one, uh, which has just come out um, this month is Death Doesn't Forget. Yeah. Um, what, what is the, What's the plot of these four books, and where are we at the time of Death Doesn't Forget? Oh, uh, well, it's it, we're in the contemporary day. Um, the first three books are all set to different Han Chinese holidays uh, in Taiwan. Like the first book is literally Ghost Month, uh, where for the entire seventh lunar month, uh, the dead, the gates to hell are opened. And under both Taoist and Buddhist beliefs, uh, spirits are released to, to walk the earth again. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of rules that you have during Ghost Month. You're not supposed to buy big ticket items like a car or a it's house. it's bad luck. It's really bad luck because oh, the ghosts will think it's an offering for them and they'll go possess it, you know. And, Ed, you know what's something? I, when I... Um... I used to have a little program uh, on another app and um, there was, um, I was in a, uh, in one of the themes was actually talking to folks that were uh, from Taiwan and Hong Kong. And we were starting to talk about ghost stories Mm -hmm. and they mentioned uh, ghost month, but also that there are a couple of very, or maybe there's one very haunted hotel in Taiwan, when oh, I was yeah. there as a little kid in the eighties, we stayed at the Grand Hotel. Yes, um, but that's not the hotel that's haunted. There's one that's super haunted, and there was person after person coming up and telling these like stories that will literally give your you know goose goose flesh. Um, <laughs> what was the what were the hotels? Well, you know the Grand Hotel is haunted. It oh, may not great. be as haunted as that other one, but <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? There's another hotel that's super haunted. I just know a, a number of locations. I don't. I don't know of one that's like particularly haunted, but um, y- you know, uh, actually, I I think the highest profile, you know, haunted thing was um, that that video of the hikers. Have you heard about this? No. Like there. Okay, there was like this group of like. I guess seven or eight people hiking in the mountains, right? You know, they shot their little home video, whatever. Um, and then one of them was reviewing the footage and it, it looked like there was like this little girl um, that was following them. And like, nobody knew who this little girl was. And um, the person that the little girl had been following, like ended up like dying mysteriously. Oh my god! Yeah, so it became this thing of like this. Uh, this was like a spirit stalking, you know, this person, uh, and this this actually led to like I think a, a three film franchise <laughs> about of like this, yeah, this, this horror film about it. Um, you know, I just know about like the. I mean, the Grand Hotel is like built on the old site of a Shinto shrine that the Japanese had put in there. Uh, 
and uh, and I know about like the mountain near Taipei 101 was like this execution and burial ground during uh, the martial law era. There's still like a number of like unmarked graves on there. Um, it, like it's really bad if you want to go near there at dark. <laughs> I, you know, I wish I could remember because these stories were like people were backing each other up and yeah. they were like, oh, my God, that happened to me. And no one goes to this hotel. And, and they were also I feel like they were talking about a highway and a tunnel. That was also a story that kept coming up again and again. And we did talk about ghost month so um, that I could just do a whole nother show on that <laughs> because it was like it was really creepy, actually. Yeah. I mean, it was late at night. It was over COVID. And I was like, great, now I can't go to sleep. And <laughs> I am not getting off, you know, the phone because now I'm scared to close my eyes. We actually were up all night because they were actually calling in from all over Asia. Um, and we were just talking about the ghosts of Taiwan and specifically Taipei. Wow. Um, so kind of crazy. But OK, so uh, I interrupted your. Uh, oh, no, no, it's all good. We're, it's a conversation. Of, uh, of ghost months. So just a little color. So continue. Oh, uh, okay. So Ghost Month uh, definitely has like the traditions around Ghost Month. Uh, and it also happens to be the one in which Jingnan finds out that his longtime girlfriend, they had separated for, for a number of years since, uh, was found murdered. And he, he kind of freaks out because, you know, he felt like they were going to get back together and get married and everything. And so Ghost Month is him trying to amateurishly try to solve this murder. Uh, the next one, Incensed, is set around uh, the Mid-Autumn Festival, uh, you know, when families are supposed to be together. Um, and it's, it's about Jingnan and his, you know, uh, gangster uncle, you know, his only, like, uh, direct uh, relative left. Uh, and him coming apart with that because uh, his uncle has this this wild daughter who you know is is pretty well off like uh, the the uncle uh, kind of operates is kind of allegedly the head of this gang in Taichung ta, uh, Taichung which is like a city to the southwest of Taipei um, and uh, he's strangely prosperous and stuff and uh and gambles with gangsters. So, um, the, so okay, so the Mid-Autumn Festival is traditionally about families coming together, but the book is about uh, Jingnan's family coming apart. Uh, and the third book, 99 Ways to Die, uh, is about the 9-9 uh, holiday, uh, the ninth day of the ninth lunar month, which uh, in Mandarin and Taiwanese sounds like uh, old, old, like the word old, old. So it's actually meant as a day where elders are very well revered. Um, but around this time, uh, Jingnan himself gets kidnapped <laughs> and he has to break out of captivity. He's got a lot, of, he's had a lot of bad luck in his life. He does, you know, but uh, in the end, he's like, okay, great, this is going to get me more followers on Instagram and, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm getting some notoriety here. People are coming to the stand just 
talk to me. (laughs) He's very modern, in other words. He is modern in that sense. Um, And so the latest book, I I take a step back, and it's not on, you know, uh, centered on holidays, celebrated by, like, uh, you know, Han Chinese uh, majority. It's it's a look at... uh, Aboriginal peoples, like uh, around the time of the Austro Aboriginal Festival in Taiwan. Um, you know, obviously this did not happen under COVID, but I'm, I'm kind of pretending COVID didn't exist in these books, which is okay, I guess, you know, because we, we do need some escapism uh, every now and then. But um, it's also a, a bit of a pullback because it's the first book in the series that's written in the third person. The first three are all in the first person. So um, I, I get to go a bit more in depth in terms of like the background of the characters. Um, it, it's been four years between 99 Ways to Die and uh, Death Doesn't Forget. Uh, and in that time, I've read books by James T. Farrell, uh, you know, who, who detailed like the lives of like Irish Americans and Irish immigrants in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I find his, his books like great. Um, you know, the, uh, Danny O'Neill, uh, Pentology and then, uh, you know, um, Studs Lonergan trilogy. Like I, I love those books and like he was able to do things in the third person that I thought were like so cool. I was like, man, I'm totally going to rip that off. <laughs> So, um, so thank you and sorry, and thank you again to James T. Farrell. <laughs> um, okay. In, in a way, you know, Jignon is kind of, he's sort of, I guess, an anthropomorphized, if I can use that word, uh, version of Taiwan that's moving yeah. through all of these uh, different phases and situations and stuff. So that's wonderful. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to also, um, I do have to make mention of this because this is where uh, we come together on many topics, but where we really bonded, which is on the topic of music. Um, yes. And when we were in school together, we had gone down, I think, to see um, a couple of sh- I think the one that sticks out in my mind was the CBGB show that we went to to go see Corrosion of Conformity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would record a lot of these shows live. So you have this tremendous collection of live recorded music can i is it safe to say that it's all generally kind of punk alt indie uh maybe also rock yeah um, generally yes definitely although i there, there were some spoken word events that i recorded as well and let me ask you what are you going to do with these recordings are you you're digitizing them now right yes i've i've slowly been digitizing them you know i'm a bit on pause <laughs> right now because my cassette deck bit it um yeah i tried so hard to fix it you know i i managed to fix my laser disc player but i could not fix this cassette player and that you know shouldn't a cassette player be easier to fix than a laser disc player uh but uh, anyway I, I, <laughs> I only work in technology i couldn't answer that question <laughs> it should be user serviceable right um, but um, actually, I was really psyched because, you know, Fugazi is trying to get copies of every single live show they ever did. And I had recorded them playing at the Barnard Cafeteria. What? And that was one of the tapes they were missing. 
And so I wrote to Ian, and I was like, hey, man, Ian Mackay, uh, the singer, one of the singer guitarists of Fugazi, right. I said, hey, I have this copy of you guys playing at Barnard. I taped it myself. And he's like, could you upload it to the service, man? Thank you so much. And, like, I, I sent it. And, uh, you know, they really cleaned it up. It sounds much better than, you know, my own wow. digitizing software. Yeah. Do you get a credit for that, at least? Uh, no, they kept it anonymous. And, like, I was like, that's, that's fine. Because it's, like, their performance, really. You know, I don't need, you know, the public, you know, cred. It's like, I had email with Ian Mackay, man. That is crazy. What year <laughs> was that that they played at Barnard? I think it was 89... It was like near the end of one of their, you know, crazy like five, six month tours. And it was like the second to last or the last stop on the tour. Like they, wow. you know, there were always people from the DC scene at Columbia and Barnard. So like they always like new people who there was would like bring huge, them in and play. Huge contingent of us yeah. there. And well, I they think played I... like two, three times there every year, right? Yeah. I think I told you this. I was at their second show in DC. Yeah. Um, and I did not like them very much, which of course goes to show you. I mean, they were like the one band that really broke out and, and did good, right? But, um, you know, obviously um, these were folks that, you know, were sort of legendary um, in, in that scene uh, for not only Fugazi, but Minor Threat and Discord and so many, you know, Discord records and supporting so many seminal acts um, and, and really kind of help propping up that scene and making it what it is. So that's incredible. So what do you plan on doing with all of these digitized recordings? They are an archive of... Um, this incredible music that's inspiring people, you know, today. Um, what are you planning on doing with that? And do you have a favorite show? Um, that is like something that you will go to your great, I will have to pry that out of your cold dead fingers. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it, over the last couple of years, it, people, you know, told me they really liked this band or whatever. You know, I'd be like, hey, you know, I have this recording of them. And they're like, what? Can I have it? I'm like, you know, sure. Um, so. I mean, you keep the master, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I keep okay. the actual physical tape. Right, I, I right, can't right. let that go yet because right. who knows? It might be, a, you know, better digitizing software down the line or something. Uh, but well, you've got to have a website or something. I mean, come on. You, you know, gotta, there's. Like, do something with this. There's already someone who's got me beat at that. Somebody who recorded, like, before me, uh, recorded a lot of shows at, like, CBGB's at Maxwell's and, uh, you know, Irving Plaza. Um, I can't remember. I, I think it's called, like, the McKenzie Tapes or something like that. Yeah. And this this drum, I mean, like, you know, I'm a pauper compared with uh, the trove that this guy did. Um, yeah, but but that doesn't, I mean, the quantity doesn't matter. What matters yeah. is that you have all of these unique, sh you know, whether it's the Corrosion of Conformity show that we went to go see at CB. CB doesn't yeah. exist anymore. Yeah. COC does, but with the death of Reed Mullen, it's not, you know, those times are never coming back. And no. they are so foundational to musicians today. It really sort of means something, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it matters that somebody else has like a huge trove. 
you could put your stuff up on the internet. I mean, you could commercialize it, frankly. I know that you probably. Oh my God, I would never way. do that. <laughs> I know you would never do that. I'm like, here I am talking to you like an investor. I'm like, uh, no, let's figure out how we like make this uh, a for-profit venture. No, but yeah. you, but you could definitely like put that up, you know, on the web and, and give people access. But I think we've got a caller, so why don't we chat with this person? Is um, it Ian Mackay? Uh, Chris, are you Ian Mackay? Um, unfortunately, I'm not. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak and allowing me to speak. Um, and the episode you had last night with your mother was just uh, phenomenal. Uh, and then tonight, I mean, uh, Ed, I mean, wow. Uh, so thank you for taking the call. And I just wanted to say that my favorite punk band is Lower Class Brats. They are a clockwork punk band out of uh, Texas. And uh, me calling in kind of where this ties in is that I was going to ask Ed if he knows a gentleman by the name of Skip Gardner. Um, and he he was kind of in the scene as well, did a lot of uh, live recordings. Um, I guess his uh, mention kind of in, in the punk rock scene is uh, Stepping Stones by Minor Threat. You can hear uh, them in the recording saying, we love you, Skip. And today is actually his birthday. Um, so that is just ironic that we're kind of all talking about these things and that she has you on. And uh, so I just wanted to kind of put that out there in the universe and say, happy birthday, Skip. Uh, happy 54th birthday. Um, he's in he's in Smithfield, Virginia now. I met him as a young punk teen when I moved to this rural small town from uh, St. Pete's, uh, Newport Ritchie area of Florida, where the scene was very thriving in the early 2000s. Um, and Skip, with his son Ian, who is my age, uh, kind of took me under his wing and uh, just showed me so much more things about the punk scene and opened up my mind and perspective and the insight uh, and the stories that he was able to share with me, uh, the things that he experienced with Operation Ivy and just all these other great bands. And uh, he, he had joined the Navy uh, for a small amount of time. And it was just uh, he's just an incredible man. And just it kind of reminds me of, of you and, you know, uh, uh, that era of uh, people actually taking the initiative uh, to go to shows and record these things and document these things. And, um, you know, uh, being in the crowd with some of the other uh, great uh, producers uh, of music, you know, uh, like but from Green Day and just all these, I don't know, when the scene was just so alive and still thriving. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, Ed, I remember thinking when you were recording that, that's, I remember you had holed up the tape player and I was like, isn't that illegal? <laughs> isn't that, are we going to get into trouble? <laughs> um, but I do, but now, I mean, you're like, thank God you were doing that, right? So, I mean, yeah. Chris, Thank you so much for sharing that memory. Do you know the band that he's talking about or the folks that he was talking about, Ed? Oh, first of all, thank you, uh, Skip. Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, uh, thank you, Chris. Chris. Uh, I don't know. I don't know Skip Gardner, but the, the name sounds familiar. And of course, you know, that's that's them getting, you know, uh, that's him getting the sign off from Minor Threat. That's that's really cool. Happy birthday, Skip. Yeah, uh, happy birthday. Yeah, happy, happy birthday. Chris, if you're a punk rock fan, we actually did a show on hardcore a few shows back, which should be in the library. Um, and we may do another because I know it's a topic that people love talking about. And there are so many scenes, um, you know, I mean, I know New York, I know D.C., um, you know, obviously there's Los Angeles, uh, uh, Austin, uh, I mean, really all over the country, Cincinnati, 
Um, and it's really great to kind of, oh, also, of course, the uh, desert, the Palm Desert generator parties. Um, so it's always sort of great to just chat with folks about music. And I always learn so much. And they're just um, a really great way to connect with people. So thanks for that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and I really, I, I wish you would actually do something with that, but that because that's incredible. I'd, of course, love to hear the, the CBS show that you recorded. Oh, yes, I'll definitely send that to you, yeah. Um, but I think you need to do something about, you know, it's it's a treasure that you have. It's historical. Um, you also, I also want to throw two other things out there. We lived in New York at a time when it wasn't safe to get on the train. Oh, um, no. And remember, like it was, there was graffiti <laughs> everywhere. It was dangerous. In fact, before we went live, we were talking about, Ed and I had a friend named Howard, who's not here, um, who was- He's still know, alive. He's, he's still alive. Not on this call. <laughs> he, um, <laughs> he, um would wear makeup and it was a little bit like Robert Smith from The Cure, you know, cerebral, you know, we're always black and, you know, seemed sort of depressed all the time. And Howard and I would go downtown to a bar or shows. And uh, I remember somebody jumped out of a train was actually, they walked by sort of, um, you know, um, kind of, um, well, you would call it sexual harassment today, but walked by <laughs> me and, you know, sort of made a, a, a comment or, you know, complimented me or something and i whipped around and, and said something um to him because um well i was raised by that kind of mother if anybody listened to the show yesterday and although she would not approve of that i have to say um, I, I whipped around and said something and then we got into a little bit of an argument you could see like howard was like okay we're gonna lose our lives on the number one train going downtown because you had to mouth off to this guy who probably does this 50 times a day to everybody and the guy before running away basically because i was just you know arguing with him looked at me and howard howard used to wear a but you know eyeliner and said yeah he's like well your boyfriend is prettier than you are and i was like wow <laughs> that hurt um but, but these were times where i mean that seems very minor but you wouldn't get on the trains um after a certain time um you know new york was grittier um and there i do remember like going down to washington square park during those days and people would walk by you trying to sell you you know drugs. oh yeah remember they'd be like set 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 yeah, like, like broad daylight broad daylight <laughs> And, and, and Tompkins Square Park, you know, there were all of these <laughs> heavy metal bars. I used to frequent Alcatraz. And uh, who yeah. was the one that the Guns N' Roses would go to that was in the village? The Scrap Bar. Um, and, uh, you know, CBs, of course, and Max's and the Old Ritz and the New Ritz, which is, uh, I think, where Studio 54, which we also did a show on, uh, oh, took over the old Studio 54. So there was just like this scene, right? Yeah. And today, and then it went through, and then New York, you're a native New Yorker, it went through a period yeah. of getting totally cleaned up, yeah. right? Where um, in the 2000s, uh, at the same time, the dot-com boom. And now it seems to have kind of reverted back to sort of this lawless time. I'm not in New York now, but I yeah. hear how dangerous, you know, I look on TikTok and it seems like a, a pretty terrible place to be right now. What? Oh, horrible? No, it's never horrible. Okay, it's more dangerous, but dangerous, you know, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, to it, it's still not approaching those days, you know, when we were in New York, like like before it was called the Lower East Side, it was Alphabet City 
And uh, right. I remember I was walking or, on or, or Avenue. As we used to, as we used to call on, it, the, the lower, lower east side. The lower, lower east side, yeah. I, I remember once I was walking on Avenue B, and, like, it was, like, you know, street market. Like, everybody was just, you know, just plain as day, just, like, selling stuff they obviously stole. And I remember I walked by this, this there was this computer and monitor, like, bolted to a wheeled cart. It said right on it, property of NYU, <laughs> like for sale. And I was like, hmm, now if I could test that to make sure it worked, I, I might be interested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people would regularly get mugged. I used to date um, a guy that was at the medical school. And, uh, you know, he basically looked like one of the, you know, painting Renaissance, but, you know, he had curly blonde hair. And I remember... Uh, he told me that he was walking and he lived up in Harlem, like way, way up. And mm. he had, we'd had a drink and he'd gone home and he called me, you know, there were no cell phones then. He called me when he got home and said that he'd been mugged. Oh. And I said, how did you get, he said, they took my wallet and keys and everything. And I said, how did you get into your place? And apparently um, they had taken his wallet, his keys. And he was like, not my keys. He'd been drinking a little bit. And so he was like, not my keys, not my keys. I need to get in my place. They took everything and ran, and then he was sort of despondent because he had no way of getting back. He'd have to walk back to campus. Uh, <laughs> Columbia Medical School is up at 168th. Yeah. We were all on 116th, so that's like 50 blocks. Um, and he ended up um, walking a few blocks towards his apartment, and he said along somewhere along Broadway, a pair of keys came flying out of an apartment building high up. Um, and they were his keys. So the people had been like, you know what, poor guy, we got your wallet. So here are your keys. Um, <laughs> they threw him back his keys. But and that was like sort of a sweet little story. But, you know, he also got mugged. I mean, oh, and that kind of stuff would happen all the time. It just wasn't safe to get on a train, you know, yeah. like after yeah. 11. And, well, people were getting mugged on campus, too. Oh, like yeah. uh, over by East Campus and like oh, the overpass yeah. on Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I actually moved my dorm because of that. I was actually at a dorm near East Campus. And then that's the year that I got into John Jay, which is where uh, you were my neighbor. So, yeah. And so it's just it seems like there's been an evolution to New York, too. And it and the changes have been so incredible. I mean, I lived in front of Washington Square Park at a time and it was completely safe. Um, and where they're crawling with undercover cops, right, after knowing it to be sort of like an infested drug den, flash forward 10 years, and it's so safe. I can walk drunk in high heels, alone as a woman at two in the morning. Yeah. Um, and as I moved out of that neighborhood, like in 2004, I remember there was like one little like super ghetto health food store um, on 14th Street. As I was moving out, Whole Foods moved into the neighborhood. I was like, of course, I would move out and Whole Foods would move in. And you, and you just even see like Wall Street where I lived more recently, right? Hmm. You, when you would go down there, it was dead. And you know that. Oh, yeah. At that joint, right? It was dead. Yeah. And it was like the canyons of Wall Street. You would go down there. The only people that would go, no one lived down there. You would go down there to work and then leave. And now, I mean, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else in New York. And it's so safe because, sadly, because of 9-11, the yeah. stock exchanges are guarded 24-7. So I can sit in front of the New York Stock Exchange at 3 in the morning and have a beer. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's something, you know, so you, I've seen these and you're a native New Yorker, you know, and you, I, I've seen these kind of peaks and valleys. Yeah. And I wonder, and we've got a caller and we'll take them after this. Um, I wonder, uh, will New York ever be making an appearance in any of your novels? Oh, uh, oh, you mean like the kind of modern day? Or uh -huh. Like, am I going to well, go back to '76? All of it. Um, other than you know, you've talked about Chinatown, a kind of larger New York. I mean, possibly. Um, you know, I had this web series book that was uh, that ran on GiantRobot.com uh, in the in the early tens and was published in Singapore last year. Um, called motherfucker land and uh there's a bit of new york in there the the book most of the book is based in jersey and the jersey shore but a little bit of it is in new york so okay. uh, i might expand upon that at some point uh, well you've got you've got a lot of uh fodder uh to draw from but why don't we go ahead and take the next caller um, right. and we also need to talk about your obsession with food really quickly because not <laughs> only do you on facebook post all of the wonderful uh and sometimes unusual things that you're eating you have very witty puns that go along with it and there's like an entire community that has sort of sprung up around uh discussing your eating habits um, <laughs> but let's go ahead and take the next caller um unicolibrium Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. It's pronounced Uniquilibrium, and my name is Hakeem, so you can call me Hakeem. Hi, Hakeem. Hi, Hakeem. Uh, Sarah, thank you for having such a great show. Ed, um, I really admire your accomplishments, uh, not only in uh, literature, but um, still being a hardcore uh, punk fan. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you. I'm also... Uh, I'm also a, a metalhead myself. I'm not really that much into punk, to be, be honest. My friend Chris, who just called in, um, he's also a business partner of mine. He, uh, he's definitely more into it. Um, I'm more of a extreme metal, death metal, new metal, anything really crazy. Do you um, like, uh, what do you think of Ghost? Ghost is cool. They're very interesting. I mean, I like the gimmick and everything like that. Um, they have, for me, they have their hits and misses, uh, just like a lot of other things. But, you know, I'm really into really groovy metal. Like if you've ever listened to Sepultura's Chaos AD or um, like the, one of the, the first albums from Fear Factory um, uh, and even Pantera and Crowbar, stuff like that. Um, oh. I, I really but, like Pelican. Do you like that? I don't even, I don't even heard of them. Oh, they, they're they're kind of like a cine, cinematic metal band, and they're all okay. instrumental. Like they, there's no to, vocals. I'll have to check that out. There's a few of those that are good, but um, Ed, I some of the things uh, in common, not only the metal, but I, I also spent uh, four and a half years in Asia, mostly with a home base in Hangzhou, China, but frequently visiting uh, Taiwan, and also uh, there's a small island off the coast of Xiamen. Uh, called uh, Jinmun Island or Kinmun, mm -hmm. um, and I used to go there all the time. And wow. uh, just something that Sarah said about you know feeling safe in the city. 
I don't know when the last time I didn't catch the very beginning of this. I don't know when the last time you were there, Ed, but being in mainland China and in Taiwan, like everywhere I went, I felt super safe. And I mean, I even saw, especially in, in mainland China, um, women and kids walking down the street at like two o'clock in the morning in for real dark alleys. Like like you, you when you look at it, you think this is such a juxtaposed thing that's not supposed to happen. There's 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 actually a child walking down a dark alley at night, you know, yeah. Um and uh, but but they were safe for the most part, as far as I could tell. I mean, I was there for four and a half years in and out, and it was just um, amazing. So it's interesting to hear that that some parts of New York that Sarah said she can sit outside of the Wall Street, uh, you know, and just kind of hang out for a little bit. Um, but anyway, yeah, man, this is uh, it's amazing to hear your accomplishments uh, and uh, congratulations on the new. Is this this book is new? Um, yeah, just came out uh, last week. Just came out. Yeah, congratulations, yeah. Taipei Taipei Night Market. I love those night markets, man. Yeah, um, all over there. They're just so great, and you know, it's, it's a really beautiful feeling. And well, the book yeah, is actually the book is uh, Hakeem. The book is called Death Doesn't Forget, and it's actually okay. number four in the Taipei Night Market. Oh, Taipei Night Market. Oh, I got series. Yeah. It's in the That's series. Yeah. series. Yeah, right. Yeah. Death doesn't forget is is number four in that series. That's the latest yeah. one. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha, yeah, yeah, that's the latest. But maybe um, like if you read them, you're probably going to have uh, uh, some nostalgia some memory. Yeah, some yeah. total nostalgia of like being at the night markets. And I wonder if yeah. um, Ed and Hakeem, I, I've been to night markets in Cambodia and uh, Vietnam. Are they similar all over Asia? I'm sure that they're all different, similar setup, similar, or it must be very, very different. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I think a lot of stuff there is very homogenous, although um, you can tell. And I'm, and when I say that, I mean Asia, but specifically Eastern Asia, not necessarily other places I've been like India and Pakistan. And, okay. you know, there's like 14 countries bordering. But but specifically Eastern Asia, a lot of stuff is very similar. Um, there are subtle differences and you can tell, especially like the, the way that the scents and odors and, um, of course, the, the lettering and writing and the way certain things are stylized. Um, Ed, would you uh, agree with that? Uh, I, I would generally agree with that. Yes. <laughs> I also agree that like in China and Taiwan, it's like, there's like almost no street crime, you know? Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know if that's culturally, you know, the thing, or it's just speaking to the degree of policing that they have, you know, the, yeah, I was going to say, kind of in, I'm not surprised to hear that in China, but Taiwan, uh, that is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was like that, too. But I mean, and everybody was so nice. Like I was there for, like I said, four and a half years and it never got old. I was always treated like a celebrity and just had a really good time. And yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a, br a brown skin foreigner, you know? And, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a, it was a great time. And um, I'm really looking forward to um, reading your books. Um, oh, thank you so much. And yeah, and uh, you know, I'll give some feedback in the future. I may do some of my podcast on it because uh, I, you know, I love talking about stuff that I experience. So, again, you guys, uh, Sarah, thanks for this great podcast. Ed, for thanks for letting me speak, and I'm it's exciting to see that we share experiences, and I look forward to reading your books. Oh, thank you so much, Hakeem. I hope you I hope you dig them, man. Thanks, Hakeem. Thanks for sharing. Um, so, Ed, um, you know that that reminds me. Um, when you talk about night markets, food is a big thing. And you love 
posting about food. Um, <laughs> one of the best things about night markets um, and markets in general is all the variety of food. Now, have you had the, I'm going to ask a really dumb question. You've been to Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, did you go every summer as a child or were you like, did you spend time there as an adult or what was your exposure? Uh, you know, uh, I would go to Taiwan probably every, every couple of years, you know. Um, but uh, I would have to say I first started going as an adult um, probably like 11 or 12 years ago. I mean, with the intent of like doing research, you know, which is really different from just like plain old visiting and hanging out. Um, you know, my father's family is from uh, Taichung. So we never really got to see Taipei much. Like we would land at the Taipei airport and then like hop in a car or van and like drive down to Taichung and I'd be like, oh, I never really got to see Taipei. But, you know, just, the, you know, the biggest city on, on the island. And it's like, you know, just going there as an adult, as someone doing research and, you know, trying to find sources and talking to people. It's It's like you know, really much different from, uh, you know, just visiting, hanging out as a kid. And uh, it's also different from just, you know, plain old living there because, like, you can have that experience and, like, not really leave the kind of, uh, you know, home base of, like, home and, like, work that you have. I feel like you have to actually get out there and talk to people. Um, I know some people who work in the entertainment industry uh, which is definitely adjacent to organized crime. And so I found like a number of Why people... is that true everywhere? Uh, I think in terms of like promoting stuff, you just have to break through the red tape of regulation in order to get the best publicity for your acts. Uh, to get... <laughs> I feel like entertainment everywhere is like hand in hand with mafia. Yeah. Well, there was no mafia, you know. Uh. <laughs> I mean, like crime, you know what I mean? Especially like movie making, not, I mean, music maybe, but like definitely movie making, I feel like yeah. always has that kind of underbelly. Because there were just so many restrictions on things. You, you need something to cut through the, the red tape. As I understand it, um, the cable industry in, uh, in Taiwan is like thanks to organized crime because each jurisdiction was like really reluctant about giving permission for cables to be buried and dug up and everything. And organized crime just went, whoosh, and oh my just, God. you know, got everything wired up. And like people really appreciated that. I feel like organized crime cannot exist without some uh, acceptance by, you know, society. Um, and so that, you, you know, whenever there's a natural disaster in Taiwan, like organized criminal groups are always the first on the scene with like blankets and food and like <laughs> aid. And seriously, they're, they're the, the government's going to take their own sweet time getting there. And, um, you know, uh, and, and so they've fostered a lot of goodwill with people. You know, I, you know, I'm writing um, a book on India and one of the stories, it is a, a fully humorous uh, bi biographical uh, tome, and it was about the um, years that I spent on the ground uh, investing in India uh, mm. as an American. Um, and uh, actually, one of the stories is called The Cable Guy, and it's literally my quest for cable. So I'm addicted to television. 
Uh, I <laughs> love reality TV. I'm not ashamed to admit that. And uh, so as soon as I, you know, moved out of my hotel into my own place, I wanted to get cable. And that opened up this ongoing kind of drama with the cable guy. Uh, you know, you had to come and install everything. And I, first of all, it took forever to find cable. I, no one could tell me where to go. So I oh. time. I, I got it set up. And then I started getting into arguments with this guy who would show up every month to collect money. And I was like, this is really bizarre. Like, this is technology. Like, why don't they just move online? And long story short, it ended up being this escalating battle uh, where, you know, the cable wasn't working. He would come by to pick up money. I, you know, was very resentful, you know, sort of American co- consumerism. Like, I, I paid for it. I want it, you know, that sort of thing. And um, it ended up, you know, kind of reaching a crescendo. Here I am. I'm a technology investor, right? My job is to invest in cutting edge technology. I finally was bringing this conflict to work and talking to you know, my partners and our fund about it and being like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm just obsessed because I'm so into TV. And it was also basically, to be honest, my connection back to America and huh. Europe, right? Because I would watch the news and there was a TV coming in from the United States and it was a way for me to uh, kind of not be so far away from home. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I watched a haunting. I was really into like, they would have the haunting on every Wednesday night at nine. And I used to watch it, you know, it'd be, it was just so delicious. I would curl up on my couch at 11 p.m. with all the night lights off and something good to eat. And then the show wouldn't come on, you know, the game <laughs> would be out. And so I was really getting irate about this. So I started talking about this at work. And one of my partners looked at me, very somber guy. I remember, he took his glasses off and he was like, Sariu, nobody uses cable anymore. I was like, how do people have TV? He was like, everybody uses dish TV. No one had bothered to tell me this. And he told me cable is one of these last fiefdoms that is controlled by mafia. And he goes, if you get into a fight with this guy, this is not good news for you. Like, stop fighting with the guy because, and by the way, there's no violence in India the way that you have in the United States, right? Where if you cut somebody off, you risk getting shot. It's not like that at all. But of course, I'm American and I watch a lot of crime TV. So I'm thinking this guy is going to break into my apartment and kill me. Um, long story <laughs> short, I ended up having to just like say goodbye to him and move to dish, which was so wonderful. It was like coming into the modern age from the stone age, right? Everything was online. They fixed things. They showed up on time, but the sort of, that was sort of an epiphany to me when, when my partner at work was just like, how do you, a, nobody has cable B those guys don't know what they're doing. It's a dying industry. Nobody has cable anymore, but it's mafia controlled. So it's really interesting that there's this parallel to Taiwan. <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> that Crazy, is awesome. Right? So like, did DSL happen? Or is that like a step that just never... Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's... I can't... I couldn't tell you. Um, I... When I arrived there, it was, I had a, what did I have? I don't even remember what my internet connection was at home because I had an office set up. Um, You know, my deal calls would happen at two, three in the morning because they were, I worked for Intel, which is an American company. And so uh, our investment, uh, our committee and partner meetings were all happening um, at two, three in the morning. I used to actually go into work. and I had a big conference room and I didn't mind doing that. Um, 
but after a while they just were wanted people to uh, not come into the office in the middle of the night because it was only the investors that were doing that. And so mm. uh, they set me up at home. Um, I don't know if it was wired or wireless. I feel like it was wired. This was like in 2000, 2005 to 2012. Wow. And the thing is, I'm like not one of these people that wants to see the latest and greatest. It works. Don't mess with it. You know, once I know what it is, I don't want to mess with it, especially if I'm like on a call with like, you know, 15 people from all over the world discussing a deal. The last thing I want to do is be experimenting with technology in my home. I don't, I don't quite remember, but yeah. But I, I, I just assumed because I was watching cable in New York. Yeah. And so when I came to India, um, yeah, I just assumed that everybody was watching cable. And of course, no one bothered to tell me anything different. So there you go. But interesting that there's that connection to mafia. But going back to food um tell me about the food scene in taiwan you're always posting amazing pictures of what you're eating in new york but what's going on there oh man it's like it is definitely a foodie city like taipei is definitely a foodie city um and it, it the interesting thing is that you have people like Nan who are really like you know, media savvy, like, you know, they, they have extra lights on for, you know, just to accommodate people filming them and stuff. And then you have like the old school people, like, uh, you know, the, the people who are in the street, like, uh, still roasting like yams on coals and stuff. And they have signs like in like five different languages that say no camera, <laughs> like don't soup, film me. Soup Nazi, so, soup yeah, Nazi. right. Like, like they, you know, this is my property. I don't want anyone else, uh, you know, gathering their IP on me on like how uh, how I handle these uh, root vegetables. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you you have people doing things like um, there there is this. Uh, one stand. I mean, there are a whole bunch of stands that do fried chicken in uh, Taipei, but there's this one stand where I don't know how they do it, but it's like it's it's like more than a chicken breast. It's like half a chicken. It's like completely deboned. It's pressed flat, and they deep fry this thing, and then they they shake like chili powder on it, and they have you know, multiple steps along this whole process. It's just fascinating to, because like everybody's got their camera up, like just filming this and like just, just seeing like all this chicken in like boiling oil is like, I don't know. It's like a nursery rhyme cup of life, you know? <laughs> why, I mean, it's amazing. Why is street food so tasty all over the world? Um... You know, eating in the open air uh, kind of just awakens this animalistic sense in us i think it just really raises your appetite and heightens your senses so that eating is like that much more of a sensory kind of experience and uh you know it's a social kind of thing too you've got like all everybody's like eating and drinking stuff so it's like it's like a community spiritual communion um there really is something about it. And, and like, it's, it's something beyond what you can capture in a photo or a video. If you're actually there in like the sounds of the night market and the sounds of yeah. the food being prepared. Um, and like it's, just hearing people laugh and, and like having conversations with people. It's, uh, 
I don't know. It's people... also the lights, the lights with yeah. all of the bugs, the moths yeah. and stuff <laughs> circling around them. And you're standing under a light eating something hot on a skewer or in a paper leaf bowl. And it's just yeah. so delicious, right? And I was yeah. really fortunate because I had a mother, you know, I traveled all over. Like I'd been to Taiwan in the 80s when we were really little. Oh. My mother was the guest of the government. And in fact, it was the first time that we had um, fake meat. Because as a government guest, you know, we were vegetarians and I went with my dad, my mom and my little brother. Um, they had to serve us. You know, my mother would always say Buddhist food. Buddhist food is what we want. And, and you know, yeah. they would give us um, that was the first time I saw in the Lazy Susan at these state dinners things that looked like ham and pork. And they were saying, no, no, it's vegetarian and you can eat it. Um, and I was like, wow, this is kind of cray, you know, because you didn't have that in the United States. at that Yeah, time. yeah. You know, so, so I had this mother that would like, basically, we would land everywhere. And she's a foodie. She's a gourmet cook and she's a gourmand. So she will never turn down food um, <laughs> and uh, loves to taste everything, even if she knows it's going to like kill her afterwards. Um, <laughs> and so we would land in Mexico or somewhere in Asia or, you know, Europe. And the first thing we do is just kind of walk out to the street. And uh, without even, and and just make sure that it's really cooked, whatever it is, um, and have like uh, you know either corn with cream and and chili on it in Mexico City, or um, you know an avocado, a san, a delicious filling sandwich with avocado and cheese mm. and tomatoes, like just made hot, like hand it to you off the griddle, or you know in India, a little paper bag filled with. Um, berries. I don't know what they're called in American or even in English, sorry, or even oh, in um, Tamil, but I think in Hindi they're called bale, and it's like a, a dried sweet and sour cranberry that they put a little chili powder over. It's so tasty. Wow. Um, but uh, what are the kind of foods that you would run into, like at the, the night market, perhaps that are real, and maybe they're reflected in your novels as well? Huh. You know, my personal favorite, what I always look for are the wheel cakes. You know, they're they're kind of like one of these vestigial kind of uh, pastries left over from the Japanese colonial period. Um, you, you know, they're actually in Little Tokyo in L.A., but uh, apart from that, in the U.S., I don't know where to get them. Um, but in, in Taipei, I always try to look for that because... Uh, while the Japanese method is always to put like red bean in between it, it you know, you, these things literally look like wheels, like probably about a, a two inch diameter or so. Uh, but in Taiwan, they put all kinds of fillings in there. Like they'll have like tuna and black pepper or they'll have like a taro or like sweet corn. <laughs> so it can be sweet or savory. It can be sweet or savory. What yeah. is it? What's the, it's a dough like filling. So is it like a bao? It's like a bun or. It's like, um, yeah, it's, it's like a, uh, it looks like a slice of a cylinder. Um, and when it, when it's cooked, you know, they put the batter in these, uh, circular, uh, forms and, uh, they put the filling on one side of the circles and then flip them so that the the two circles uh, meet and the filling is like within what's being cooked. Um, yeah. No, my mouth is watering just talking about it. I know. About it. I know. <laughs> I'm just, I, I love 
just, I just love eating street food and it's so too, and sometimes the conversations that you have and you know, the people, um, not just the street, well, not so much the street vendors. I think I'm thinking more, this is probably, I wonder if this is true in Taiwan, um, and other parts of the world, but the people that sell you agricultural products on the street, whether it's fruit or vegetables, they're so generous, right? Like you basically be like, Hey, I don't know if those mangoes are good. They take the knife, cut it open, you know, and just say, have, have a piece, try it, try it. For yeah. Here's a lychee, you know, so just, I mean, and, and it just sort of kind of sad at kind of the, the challenges that they go through. in this country too, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. when you go to farmer's markets and stuff, I mean, I'm not talking like, like the 14th street farmer, I'm talking about like, you know, like <laughs> far, I kind of feel like that's kind of corporate, you know, um, even though it is a real farmer's market, uh, yeah. at least New Yorkers think so. But I think about the ones, you know, I'm in Boston now that we go to where my mom's known the people for years. And mm. we went to one a week ago, we hadn't seen them over COVID for years. And you know, they were immediately like, ah, there you are, professor. And my mom was like, oh, I left, uh, here's the $5 that I owed you from two years ago. You know, oh. they're like, oh, don't worry about it. And, <laughs> you know, we got some new beats in. You know, it's just like a, it's not just about the food and what you're eating, but it's these relationships that you form with people. Um, it becomes the culture of a place. And and I, I, I suspect that's probably true all over the world. Yeah. Um, and, and in, in places like Taiwan as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, we were supposed to do an hour and we're like into two hours now. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. 10 o'clock. Oh my gosh. Crazy. Right. Totally crazy. Um, um, so, well, <laughs> well maybe we should wrap <laughs> it up. <laughs> so, uh, we could, uh, wrap up we could continue a little more it's completely up to you um well maybe we could wrap up with an eye towards doing something else down the line i would love that yes um i think it would be amazing to talk about all of these topics i think food might be an interesting one actually yeah um i'm not on facebook anymore but i always I don't know if you accept requests from randos that are interested in seeing your food posts or if they're open to the public, <laughs> but um, I always really enjoyed, I mean, I think almost once a day you would post something interesting that you were eating mm -hmm. uh, with a, a funny little witty pun. And then there are usually always like a hundred comments of people trying to out pun you, oh, yeah. out, outrun and out pun you. I'm sure it's all uh, 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 writers frustrated writers <laughs> <laughs> all writers are frustrated um but uh you know feel free to to try to follow edlin on facebook he's also on twitter uh we put out a tweet today and his handles are on that uh so that would either be uh on my twitter it's Sadayu, uh or i think there's a colin colin will tweet uh or we'll, we'll tweet it out again anyway um Ooh. And so you can follow him there. And his latest book is Death, Death Doesn't, Doesn't Forget, Forget, which <laughs> is the fourth in the Taipei Night Market series. Uh, Ed also has a website. So you can contact him there. I'm sure you've got your contact information with any feedback uh, uh, or uh, uh, praise for the book. Um, Ed, I want to thank you so much. It's crazy that we had not talked since college yes but you know hey we we have deep experiences from that 
that uh, bridge the span of time. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> and I will have to out you here and say that you remember you used to have a bear on your front door with, <laughs> and it would say Ed the Bear. <laughs> so I think it's a damned song, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I think the damn is that Edward the Bear. But you mm-hmm. had Ed, Edward or Ed the Bear on your door with a bear on it. Yeah, it um, was a cartoon, too. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it only had like two installments, though. <laughs> That's so funny. I, mean, I thought it was a reference to the damn song. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I do remember those days, really. Those were golden times, let me say. Truly. Uh, really yeah. fun times. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a... Uh, couple of great shows coming up. We're just trying to figure out where they go in the next week or two. Um, so will that, that will be posted on our schedule uh, here on Colin. Um, and Ed, thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on the latest book. And uh, we will do another one of these uh, on some fascinating topic. And again, guys, the book is Death Doesn't Forget by Ed Lynn. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to Curious and Curiouser. Please follow Ed. Uh, if you feel compelled to follow me, follow me. If you don't, that's fine too. Oh, uh, definitely do, follow Sarah. But Thank do you follow so much Ed for me on and the show. Thank oh, you. such a pleasure! Such <laughs> a pleasure. Feels like no time went by at all. Thank no. you so much, Ed. <laughs> Thank you. See you guys next week. Bye, Bye. for now.